Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. LMFM Podcasts, brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Getting hitched? Cartmacross Credit Union likes to say I do when financing your wedding loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The Renault Selection Used Car Event is now on. If you want to save thousands, check out this month's offers, including low APR finance, two years warranty and roadside assistance. Terms and conditions apply. Whoa, 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 what's going on? It's the 1st of May and it's Kylie with Santa Baby on late lunch. Oh, we'll be more than with him. And he's probably above listening to this in the minute and thinking, I'm not looking forward to half three at this stage. Is that the first Christmas song played on LMFM in 2019? Well, we'll claim it anyway. Yes, but the reason we're playing it, folks, tell them, Louise, tell them why we're playing Kylie. We're playing Kylie, which felt so strange to play, was that, Jerry, you once told me that the 1st of May is Christmas Day. That's you want it. to explain? The 1st of May, Christmas Day. Yes, I will explain, because here it is for you folks. Whatever day the 1st of May falls on, whatever day of the week, that day will be Christmas Day in that year. And it's the same for every year. And do you know what, Jerry? I've just gone through the calendar and no other first of any other month this year falls on a Wednesday. Absolutely. So remember that for future reference, folks. The 1st of May, Christmas Day. On that day, that day it's Wednesday today, Christmas Day will be Wednesday in 34 weeks exactly, it's Christmas Eve. I'm sure the shops will be full of all that stuff before we know it. Anyway, just a little ditty at the start of the show. <laughs> Can I tell you? I'll whisper into your ear a little later. Is that okay? Yeah, I've still four selection boxes. I'll bring Indeed, one in tomorrow. Indeed, she has. This one, <laughs> oh, Christmas and Louise Wallace. Don't get us started there. Anyway, a little bit of trivia to begin. Late lunch this day, the 1st of May. Some say the beginning of summer. Some say it's the 1st of June. But anyway, it's a lovely day where we are. Hope it is where you are too. Now, we've met my first guest previously on Late Lunch when he spoke to me about Krav Maga, a self-defence technique in which he holds a black belt and teaches and has taught so many people. Today, Anthony Canan is returning to Late Lunch with an incredible story of survival, which I only became aware of very recently. Anthony, you're very welcome to the show. How you doing, Jerry? Thank you for joining me again on Late Lunch. Let's go back to 1994, April 22nd. What age were you then? 
I was 10 years of age, Jerry, in 1994, so uh, when the accident happened, or the, the, the attack, yeah. You were living in the dock, born and reared there? Yes, that's correct. And childhood, you had a happy childhood. You weren't friends that day. You were doing a little nixer, is that fair to say, yeah? Yeah, you could say that, yeah. We were just trying to make a bit of pocket money, you know, cleaning up sheds and stuff like that there, you know, to buy the, the normal things you would as a 10-year-old, you know. Yeah, I did it myself. It was a great way to get a couple of bob for the pocket. And... In the process of cleaning out the shed with your mate, something happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, the older brother of one of one of my friends, he he cut a lo- he cut lawns, you know, for, uh, you know, to make a few pounds as well. And there was a petrol can in the shed, and basically, uh, the petrol can had spilt over me uh, in the process of cleaning the shed, and I had spilt petrol onto my clothes uh, in the shed, you know. So you were then heading home, I take it, to, to get changed. Exactly, yeah. So me and a, another friend of mine, we were both 10 years of age. I only lived around the corner from from the shed we were cleaning up, you know, and I headed on home, you know, to get changed out of the clothes, yeah. What happened on that journey home? Uh, on the way home, I was approached by a gang of youths who were about 17, 18 years of age. And I know now, I didn't know at the time, but they had been in the house drinking alcohol and th- things like that there. But uh, they asked me what had happened because I was saturated. And basically, um, I told them, not knowing, you know, severity of what had happened, uh, that I'd sp- I spilled petrol on myself. And uh, basically, one of, the, one of the, the guys that was in the gang, he took out a lighter and... Uh, and came up behind me and uh, put the lighter to me and I just went up in flames. Holy. My, oh my, that is just uh, horrendous to even contemplate what happened. Did you know this fella? Did you know these guys? I did not, know. They were, they, were, they were a lot older than me. I was only 10 years of age. He was 17, 18, I think, at the time. This uh, this guy, you yeah. You are literally burning to death with this ignition. Yeah, yeah, I went straight up. Uh, you know, at the time it was um, national news. It was all over the the, the front the front of the papers and an RT main news and things like that there. And uh, again, I think they described it as the human ball of fire um, at the time, you know, from from uh, people who, who witnessed it, you know. But there was a man there, and his name was? Uh, Harry McIntaggart. What did he do? Harry, well, basically... If he, if he told you the story, he was sitting watching, I think it was, he told me he was watching Coronation Street at the time on his sofa and he seen me running past his front window in flames. And basically he took action, came out of his house and uh, picked me up and uh, threw me into uh, wet grass, uh, long wet grass and rolled me in the wet, uh, long wet grass and uh, put the flames out. Uh, so basically Harry McIntaggart uh, saved my life uh, on that day. But you were severely burned. How severely? I had uh, 86% of my body was burned. Yeah, all third and fourth degree burns. So uh, the, one of the most severe kind of burns you can get. So, uh, Do you yeah. remember much? Were you out of it at, at that time? Do you remember Harry doing what he did? I, I don't remember Harry doing what he did. I can remember uh, the flames. I can remember uh, lying in the grass after um, I was put out. Uh, I can remember... Uh, my father uh, coming uh, beside me as I was lying on the grass and it was raining I can remember a lot of rain coming down on top of me and I was face down in the grass and basically I, I always say to myself because I could see my, my left hand because my, tor- my head was torn to the, to, the, to the left hand side and I could see my left hand 
in the grass and all I could see was my bones on my on my left hand because all the flesh and, and, and the skin had been burnt off my, my left hand but I didn't go into shock my father was there he was you're going to be okay son you're going to be okay and I'm sort of glad I didn't wasn't on my back so I could see my, my body but um, uh, so that's sort of uh, the vision that I have you know and the memory that I have before the ambulance came and took me to hospital uh, to the light hospital first and then on to Crumlin because you were a critical case you were moved almost yeah. immediately this yeah. was yeah. really life threatening you were in a very precarious situation yeah yeah I, you know on, on the night on the night that I was taken into Crumlin, Crumlin Hospital um, uh, I actually wasn't meant to survive the night and uh, the priest had uh, actually given my last rites on that night and my family were all there and uh so, so that first night was was very, very critical, and the days after as well. So, do you remember much of that as a child of ten? Uh, much of you know that you you saw all the people there around. You were aware of that that they were there. Were you? Did, did you did you have that awareness? I I, I can remember. Yeah, yes. I can remember. You know, I think the shock. Uh, you know, uh, drowned out the pain. You know, uh, but again, I can remember until I went to Light Hospital. And uh, basically, you know, I can remember the the, the nurses uh, and the doctors working on me until they put me out with, with, with whatever drugs they'd given me at the time. Mm. Now, this was going to be a very lengthy battle for you. Touch and go for a while before you, you actually got out of the woods initially and then a long road after that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I spent six months in, in Crumlin Hospital and, uh, you know, there was a lot of um, rehabilitation after that. Um I, I had got a lot of infections in my wounds afterwards as well. I got septicemia as well in my wounds, and that was a time as well that I was given my last rites because uh, it was very, very bad. It was very touch and go at that time, and basically, um, you know, six months in Crumlin, and then learning how to walk again from a wheelchair to a cane to crutches, and uh, trying to build my strength up because there was a lot of a lot of damage done, you know, to my to my tendons, to my muscle, everything, because the, the bones are so deep in my body, you know. So um, mm. it, was, it was a long road, you know, very long road. Skin grafts? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah numerous skin grafts. I, I've lost count of the amount of skin grafts that, I, that I've received. Yeah, it was a very long road. You know, the, the, the rehabilitation after you, get out of, uh, after you get out of hospital, that's very, very, very hard work, you know. That's, that's where the hard work really, really starts, you know. So six months in hospital in Dublin, intensively being cared for. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember coming home? You know, getting out, what were your thoughts around that, the feeling to, to get home again? Look, it was obviously a big fear for me coming home, you know. Uh, you know, whenever I was uh, getting out of hospital, I had to wear a bodysuit, which covered my whole body. It was to do with the healing of the scars. And I, and I had the word around my face, so all you could see were my eyes, my nose and my mouth, and it covered my head as well, so I had to wear a cap. So you couldn't really see me, you know. I was sort of like hiding under this, this bodysuit and this mask, and I was very, very fe fearful of that too because I didn't know how people were going to look at me, you know, especially with the scars and the way I was, you know. So for a 10-year-old, you can imagine, you know, what would be going through my mind, you know. Uh, so basically, uh, it was a big surprise for me when I did land home because basically the whole town had got together and organised a massive party you know uh, I, I, it was like must have been about a thousand people there you know it was unbelievable the, all the community had got together you know so it was a great time coming back you know it made me feel a lot better you know so it just shows you about the community when they come together what they can do you know 
Great. And you, any issues with anybody, you, you know, pointing you out or, you know, the way children can be cruel at times, you know, you're a teenager, heading for your teenage years at this stage. Did you come across anything like that? Of course, you know, you know, when, when, when I went back to primary school, which took a bit of time, you know, obviously you're going to get special attention from the teachers, you know, because of what had happened to you. And also I had to wear the mask and I had to wear the bodysuit to, to, to school. So there was a lot of bullying going on. I was called things like Scarface, Rasher Face, you know, uh, what's so special about you, you know, and, and it makes you feel a certain way. Yes, of course, but they don't understand, you know, they're very young too, you know, so again, I'm sure they would regret saying them things, you know, now, you know, if they thought about it. So The one interesting thing is you, you were... Look, you never got anything really round your face or your head yeah, just, much. Yeah, just partly, part, part yeah, of my face, but, yeah. But yeah. very little. So really. I was very, very lucky, yeah. Yeah, with that. Scenario. Your body takes time. You're growing up at this stage. You're developing as a man yeah. and, and this is going on as well. When did the graph stop and, and the follow-up or when? how many years did that go on for? You're talking, uh, you're talking 10 years at least, yeah. Yeah, so there was ongoing rehabilitation and physio and uh, skin grafts, you know, because you might get a skin graft, it might not heal correctly, you know, in the right way, and then you have to get it redone, and then another one might develop. So it was a long process, a very, very long process. That's the physical end of things, and that's a massive challenge. But Mm. mentally, what was that like, you know, coping with this? Were there challenges there for you? Very, very challenging. You know, you know, there's one thing about the physical element of it. It's the mental element of it is um, even more difficult, you know, coping with that, you know, and, and coming through school and secondary school, you know, and then watching as well my family, my mother and father as well, uh, and a much hurt and emotional trauma they went through. It was very, very difficult. But I think, I think that's what made me who I am today, you know, that, that strength that I feel, you know, in, in what I do and, and what I teach today, you know. I think it gave me that strength, you know. The guy that did this was before the courts, but he never got a custodial sentence. He, he, he never did any time for this. He was 17 at the time, but there was a curfew imposed on him for a couple of years. You obviously know who this person is. How do you feel towards that person today? Look, uh, Jerry, I don't think about him, you know. I don't know much about him. I don't know what he does, you know. I don't know. Uh, but, again, it's not something I like to think about, you know. Um, the past is the past, in, in my view, you know. And I just look to the future. I don't I don't think about negative things anymore, you know. And I, I don't want to really know. I, like, he's never he's never approached or apologised anything like that there, you know. And it is a shame that he never got a custodial sentence. But, look, listen, I can't question, you know, that, you know, so... That's the past. Anthony, I just want to come back for a moment to the man who acted so speedily that day, Harry McIntyre. Do you ever see him in, uh, these days? I do see uh, Harry. Um, not as much as I'd like to see him, but we do cross paths now and again. Yeah. He was recognised, though, wasn't he, for what he did? He was, yeah. He was He was awarded a Medal of Bravery by, by the Dundalk Town Council, you know, mm. and uh, rightly so, you know. He, he Fantastic, you know. Well, what he did, you know, he, you could say he saved my life on that day, you know, so... Uh. Mm. Well done, Harry, if you're listening to us today, 25 years on. What an act of bravery. And uh, this man I'm sitting before me today, Anthony, uh, I'd say he owes his life to you for that speedy action on that day back in April 1994. Now, let's come up to today. You are a well-known guy in this county with Krav Maga. And it's going really well for you, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's fantastic, Jerry. Yeah, it's it's evolving all the time. You know, it's fantastic. Uh, you know, I've been teaching now for five years, and uh, I was training for a long time before that. And basically, uh, the school is just growing and growing and growing. Uh, the full time school I run in Dundalk. Uh, yeah, it's a brilliant thing uh, in the school and outside the school as well, and different programs. You've moved to new premises lately. Yeah, we've moved to a new uh, newer venue now in River Lane, Dundalk, and um, we're starting all new classes for kids and for teenagers and women's classes, stuff like that. They're all self all self defence related uh, training classes. It's br- brilliant. Yeah, it's a sign that you are in demand, and more and more people want to do this. You also uh, branch out from the school because I know it's Sacred Heart in Drogheda. Somewhere you're involved, the secondary school there, yes? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm involved in doing programs in a lot of the secondary schools around Loud. Sacred Heart is one in the Madrada, mm, mm. but also uh, different schools, secondary schools in Dundalk area as well. Yeah. And they're the, uh, programs uh, based on awareness and um, confidence building and also self defence training, things like that, there, you know, which is fantastic for our youth, you know, it's brilliant. You're a black belt in this, so uh, it's like uh, other self-defences. Use the belt system, starting at white and yeah. working your way through to the black. Did it take you long to earn that? Yeah, it, it takes you about uh, if you're if you're working hard, you're training hard. It take you up maybe eight or nine years, yeah, to achieve. Yeah, so it is a long path, a long journey. It is, yeah. What, what do people find in Krav Maga? What, what, what does it give people that more and more people are turning to it and getting very interested in it and becoming proficient at it? Look, society is changing, Jerry. you know, and again, there's a lot of violence out there, you know, and, and a lot of people are, are very fearful, you know, and they want to learn something, you know, some sort of skill to be able to defend themselves if they need to do. And, and again, what I would say is people get most out of Krav Maga is confidence in the ability and giving them some sort of strength, some sort of skill to be able to react in that moment of danger if they have to do so. And not only for themselves, but also their family and their loved ones. Giving them that skill, that strength and that confidence, you know. And that's what Krav Maga is about because it's for everyone, you know. It's not just for a select few. Krav Maga is really for everyone. It's, it's about giving every decent person a good skill of self-defence to defend themselves and that's what it's all about. Where you've come from and what you've been through, what we were talking about earlier, do you feel that that puts you in this direction or it's been a real help to you to succeed and prosper in this? Look, I can't say if I, if I wouldn't be the person that I am without what happened to me. But, you know, it happened and that's it. I'm very, very surprised at the, the, the feedback that I'm getting. It was just This came from a post that I put up the other day on social media. And I'm very, very surprised at the feedback that I'm getting. I didn't do it for attention or sympathy. It was just something that, that I, I realised was 25 years since it happened. And a lot of people didn't know about it. And basically, you know, now they know and they're very, very surprised. A lot, even of my own students, you know, in my own school, mm. didn't even know about it. So now they know, and they're very, very surprised. Well, I was surprised, and yeah. that's why you're sitting in that seat here today, because yeah. I wanted to bring this story to a wider audience as well. Um, today, when you when you perform yourself and you take part in that, there's no issue. Your your skin and your body mass is where is it compared to say a, a, a normal body? You know that somebody has okay. has had nothing like this. I, I I've been through all that. You know uh, again. Uh my my body is as, as strong as as fit as as it can be, you know. And again, these are these are all uh, um, basically it's it's the physical is gone. Basically, yes. it's it's all visual now, you know. Mm, so so mm. again, I'm not 
you know, I'm a very, very fit person, you know. And again, uh, I've trained a long time. So again, I've come through all that and there's no, there's no worries there at all. Mm. No worries. About Krav Maga, who is it for? What, what age can you start this at? When can you take it up? I did mention this to you before, but remind us again. Is it for all ages? Yeah, we do kids from 6 to 11. And then we do juniors from uh, 11 to 12, 13. And then we do teenage classes. And then we do adult classes after that. Um, uh, at the moment, we're, we're also doing uh, community programmes um, uh, through, through uh, uh, government uh, bodies like and uh, in communities, different communities, and social inclusion, and also uh, community involvement and, and uh, confidence building, you know. Mm. And uh, these, these are working very, very well as well, you know, so I'm very, very happy with them, as well as the secondary school. Uh, programs and projects uh, they're really really they're, they're, um, there's a lot of work going on outside my own school even probably more so uh, than, than ever before you know which mm. is fantastic What about competition are you part of this this competitive aspect of it? No that's the, that's the great thing about Krav Maga you know there is no competition in Krav Maga <laughs> you know and, and again people love that that's why they join because they don't want to be in competition Okay, they want to learn that skill yes. without having to be in competition so it's just, and you can start at a white belt and stay there if you want to. It's up to you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's we've all different types of people and from all different backgrounds. And also, you know, they have, you know, we've a pharmacist, we've a doctor, we've a lawyer, we have a, you know, we've all different types of people, you know, training with us, you know, and they're mm. just looking to get some sort of strength, some sort of confidence in their ability to defend themselves. Like I hear a lot of horrible stories, you know, especially from women who maybe have been sexually assaulted, maybe things like that. There. And all they're looking for is a wee bit of confidence back to be able to walk down the street and feel safe and maybe to protect themselves and maybe their loved ones. And that's all. That's all it is. And the thing about this is to have this in your repertoire if ever you need to use it. But most situations can be dealt with, you know, yeah, on a, of course. With, without anything at all. But you have that and it gives you that extra confidence. Yeah. Look, it's great to meet you again today. Thank you for coming and telling your remarkable story. And don't ever play this down. I know you said you're wondering why people are all of a sudden. But listen, Anthony Canaan. You are one in a million. You really are what you've come through and where you are today. Continued success with the school and at the new venue in River Lane in Dundalk and with all the schools and people you're working with. I'm sure you've made a difference and will to many, many people's lives. Thank you for joining me on Late Lunch today. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. Isn't drink or alcohol great? By times it is, of course, to celebrate and once it's taken in moderation and can be controlled, sure, there's no issue with it. But when drinking gets out of hand, it's another matter entirely. And not just for the person who is struggling with alcohol or drink, but for the people living with them, their families and friends. And we're going to talk about this for the next while because there's a wonderful organisation called Al-Anon. And it's for family members of people who have difficulties with alcohol and drink. I'd like to welcome to Late Lunch this afternoon four people who have been involved with the organisation and have stories to tell. Patricia, Pat, Marcus and Gina are with me on Late Lunch. And you're all very welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Patricia, could I start with yourself? You're going to tell us a little bit about Al-Anon. When did you come to Al-Anon? Is it long ago? I came to Al-Anon, I know it was in November, but I'm not too sure of the year, but I'm going to say roughly um, maybe 20 years ago. But for me, um, 
the length of time I'm in it, it is not of great importance for me because I feel if I'm uh, still alive in 40 years or 100 years time, I will still be going to Al-Anon. Um, Al-Anon, it's a worldwide fellowship and it came into being in about 1951. Um, Al-Anon is for people who are affected by the drink of uh, alcoholism. Uh, we believe it's a family disease and not only does it affect the drinker, but it certainly affects people around the drinker. Um, it can affect not only uh, one or two people, it can affect maybe up five, ten, what, whatever. Um, it can be a spouse or it can be a fam- family member. And we come and we share our experience, strength and hope to try and help us to cope with this illness. Um, it is a disease, it is an illness and it, there's many factors to it. Um, it affects people in different ways. It affects uh, the drinker in different ways, but it also had a very uh, wide impact on myself. I came because I saw it um, written in our church bulletin was I troubled by somebody else's drinking. And when I read that, I knew I was troubled by somebody else's drinking. So I came to Al-Anon um, many years ago and I have not looked back since. And when you go there, do you tell your story? Do you stand up and tell people that you don't know really as such where you're coming from and why you're here? Well, people uh, in Al-Anon, we do uh, understand where we're coming from. Mm. Um, Our stories are different, but the common thread is there, and that's uh, the drink. Okay. And we share our experiences as to how we cope with another person's drinking. And what has Al-Anon done for you? What change did it make to your life? How, How did it impact on you and the situation you found yourself in? Well, it made a a grave impact on me because I knew that, uh, not at the very beginning, but as time went on, I knew I was diseased as well. I was affected by this and I kept the focus on myself and I did try to take it off uh, the alcoholics in my life. And by me sharing and listening to others, I changed. I changed my attitudes towards uh, the alcoholic and I changed my attitude towards others in general and life in general. So I did recover a simple programme but for me I did complicate matters. I made it harder for myself but uh, it took me a while. It was a slow learning curve. It took me a while but uh, I am recovering and I know I have more recovery to do but my attitude has changed and my life has changed for me. Isn't that interesting, the way you say recovery and yet you weren't the alcoholic? But there is a recovery. There has to be for the people surrounding the person or persons. Absolutely. Let me bring Pat into the conversation. Pat, you're very welcome to Late Lunch uh, this Wednesday afternoon. Now, your story, and I'm familiar with all your stories, um, you're from a rural background. You describe yourself as a quiet enough person, yes? Yes, very much so, yeah. And you met this woman who would become your wife. Yeah, well, before I met my wife, yes. uh, as, as you say, I was uh, brought up in rural Ireland uh, back in the 50s. Uh, pretty frugal upbringing, I'd have to say. Uh, but I eventually uh, finished my schooling and I headed for the bright lights of Dublin. Uh, I wasn't equipped for city life, I'd have to say. Um, I had very low self-esteem. Uh, I didn't know where I fitted in. Uh, I wasn't really able to express myself and uh, I was, um, I suppose, attracted to 
they say opposite attract, so I was a, attracted very much so to outgoing, gregarious people who were up for the crack, and uh, mm. I was the opposite spectrum. Um, so I was uh, eventually attracted to my wife, got married. Uh, things were okay at the start, uh, like most people experience, but I did have a niggling in the back of my head that drink was kind of an issue. Um, my wife was from a family who would be considered to be heavy drinkers, not necessarily alcoholic. Me, most people think, um, you know, the alcoholic is the fella down in the, in the gutter looking up at the stars. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of, probably the majority of alcoholics are actually able to function in a, some way and lots of them in a meaningful way. And it's their spouses and partners that really bear the brunt of the uh, their, their addiction. Uh, but I, as I say, uh, realised that my wife had a major drinking problem over uh, the years and uh, not, as I say, not having the knowledge or not being um, equipped to be able to say what was actually going on with me. Uh, I wasn't able to do anything about it. I kept doing what I now know I shouldn't have been doing. I was making all the excuses for her. I was ringing work for her. Uh, I was keeping to the outside world, you know, that everything was hunky-dory and I was losing myself as a result and I was going deeper and deeper into the mire and uh, I forced her into uh, into addiction programmes and into recovery programmes uh, on a number of occasions and they always kind of worked short term but she always reverted back to the old ways uh, and I was... You know, losing myself even more, I suppose, in that situation. You'd get a bit of hope. you think things were going to change. And then I was just whamming. We were back to square one again. So I had to really myself... It was only when I was really put up against the wall, I had to surrender, I had to say. Because I, I, was, I am, I was, and I still am, a major controller. I thought I could control everything in my life. And... I thought I could control the alcoholic and as I say I did everything in my power to do that trying to control money throwing expensive drink down the sink all the stupid things that we all do uh, and uh, I had to as I say I had to surrender I had known about self-help programs and stuff for a long number of years because I had journeyed through addiction centres and that with my wife but I just wouldn't accept that I was a part of the problem uh, I thought that you know if she got sobriety, everything would be grand and we just carry on. She did eventually get sobriety for a long number of years and uh, unfortunately things weren't hunky-dory at all because we now didn't have the excuse of the drink to blame on what was what was going on. And as I say, I reluctantly crawled into the rooms of Alanon a long number of years ago now and I found it very, very uncomfortable at the start. I wasn't able to share. I, wasn't a- I was in mainly rooms of women and that made it even more difficult for me. But as <clears throat> despite all that, when I left the room, I I got a bit of serenity out of it. It was taking me out of the situation for an hour a week or two hours a week or whatever, and it was giving me a little bit of me time. And by listening to other people sharing their stories, some of them a lot worse than mine, I have to say, um, but they seemed to be getting on with life. They seemed to be happy. They were well-dressed. They were getting on with life, whereas I was stuck in the mire and I was going nowhere. And I was, it, wasn't, it wasn't good for me to be told at some of the first meetings, you know, that we're not going to give you advice. 
The fellowship doesn't give advice, it shares a strength, hope and experience. And we're not going to tell you to do X, Y or Z and the alcoholic will be sorted out. You're here, this programme is for yourself and you have to start looking at yourself and what part you have taken in it. And uh, I found that very hard at the start because I wasn't used to checking in with myself. I wouldn't have been even able to name my emotions or stuff at that time. Um, I was out there somewhere. But by being told gently but firmly that, you know, you have to start doing things differently. If you do what you're always done, expect another answer, but then you're only a fool. If you want to change something, you have to get up and do it and change and do something different, and you will get a different uh, outcome. Now, that was grand to hear that, and I could take it on board, and I could kind of understand it, but I couldn't do it because I had built up years and years of coping mechanisms. I had built a big, strong wall in front of myself, and... I would never let anyone through that and I could never let anybody, any part of myself out. I just wasn't part of me. I couldn't do it. But as I say, just by persistence, thinking nearly and osmosis, by sitting in the meetings, listening to other people, sharing what they had done and how I had helped them and how I had given them an insight into how other people were able to live meaningful lives. I, despite myself, started to be able to share very little at the start uh, and I wouldn't share any personal details at the time but gradually I got to a stage where I could share my story and could start to look at myself in a different way and as Patricia said earlier by changing my attitude to what was going on and by approaching it in a different way and just looking at it in a different way I started to grow myself and I'm now at a stage where I'm fairly comfortable in myself I have the tools to manage when things go wrong and I also have the awareness, which is the big thing for me, if something is... If I'm starting to do some of my old traits because I'm a person, I have it, and I can revert back very quickly, but I now recognise it and I'm able to stop and start over again. And the programme has just been a night opener to me. What an incredible endorsement for Al-Anon that absolutely is. You have four children. What about your wife? Wife is still... As I said earlier, she had a about 18 years of sobriety and about six years ago I'm back on it unfortunately and is now a full-blown alcoholic spends all her day drinking cans in the house and you're living with that complete complete waste of a life and you're living with that I am are you coping I'm coping with the help of the programme yes if I hadn't got this programme I just don't know where I'd be Late Lunch LMFM Radio, incredible stories. Are you affected by anything that uh, Pat has said there to us a moment ago, Patricia? If you are, we have more to hear uh, on the show this afternoon. Don't forget our numbers, 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text to comment, or you can call in on 1850-715-958. We're talking about Al-Anon, a wonderful organisation who offers understanding and support for families and friends of problem drinkers on Late Lunch this afternoon. Gina, you're very well. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you, you for Thank joining you. me. In your instance, it was your ex-husband. Tell us the story. Um, my ex-husband was um, a businessman. Um, we lived quite close, quite close to his his business. Um, for a long time, I blamed um, his his job. I blamed his family. I blamed where we lived um, because there was always chaos in our home um, and a lot of arguments. Um, it took me a long time, I suppose, to come out of that denial um, of the real issue. 
um, even though I found bottles hidden, um, you know, in the hot press, in, um, in my son's bedroom, in the attic, um, empty bottles. And um, I suppose one of the things, and, you know, Pat brought it up, that a lot of um, my thinking was that an alcoholic is somebody that's, you know, in a gutter, drinking out of a brown paper bag. Um, but because Paul was holding down um, a good job and, you know, running a business, I thought, you know, this couldn't be an issue. Um, so I suppose the reason I I came into Al-Anon was that, um, you know, the, the progression of the disease, you know, it, it's a gradual um, progression. Um, part of it all was the, the aggressive behaviour and the abusive behaviour. Um, I would have dealt with an awful lot of verbal abuse. Um, and I think it's very hard to pinpoint, you know, that that, that is abuse. Um, but the reason I, I found the rooms of Al-Anon, um, I had a very good friend. Um, the two of us were pregnant together. Um, she had a little son um, a few weeks after I had my son, David. And um, the two of us um, used to get the train to work together. And um, she used to be talking about her husband. And um, I was able to acknowledge that her husband was an alcoholic, but I couldn't say my husband was the alcoholic. Um, I used to say to her, you know, your husband is the alcoholic, but mine's a heavy drinker. So um, there was an incident where, you know, he had become very abusive and aggressive and um, he had threatened to commit suicide. And um, he went in to our, our son, who was 14 at the time, and told him that he probably will never see him again. And the reason being was because of his mother. Um so I was very distraught and, you know, he drove off in the car and I really thought this is it. You know, he is going to to end his life. Um, so I picked up the phone and I rang, rang this friend because. I imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Remember her, remembered her mentioning this program that she had started to go to. Um, so she suggested that I went to the next Al-Anon meeting with her, which, which my home group is, is um, in Swords. And I went to that meeting and that meeting I sat and I listened and I heard my story. Um, and I suppose one of the things, part of the denial and part of how I was affected was I was... Um, I blamed myself. I really thought that the issues in my home was because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't a good enough person. I wasn't a good enough mother. I wasn't a good enough wife. I'm sorry, I just get emotional when I talk about it. Um, but in the rooms, people shared the same stories. Um, 
I could relate to everybody. And it was the first time I could actually say the word that my husband was an alcoholic. I felt safe enough to be able to acknowledge it. The people in the rooms understand um, they understand where we're coming from. It is a disease, as was mentioned before. It's a disease um, of the mind, body and soul. Um, and, you know, how I was affected, I I suppose I had become a robot. I just was functioning. I didn't know who I was, what I was, what I was feeling. But in the rooms, I started to focus on myself. And that was one of the big things in Al-Anon, to put the focus on yourself. Um, I focused on myself. Um, I stopped enabling the alcoholic. That's another big thing, I suppose. Um, I enabled him for so long. I covered up. Um, I paid his bills for him. Um, I bought his drink for him. You know, I used to buy seven bottles of wine during my, Chris, or my, my shopping every week because I thought if I buy seven bottles of wine, that's all he'll drink. Um, his drinking was a very secretive. He was a very secretive drinker. An awful lot of the drinking was um, done, you know, Actually, you know, you talk about drink driving. He used to buy the drink in the shop and drink drink it on the way home. Um, very little of it was done in the house or in a pub. Um, so it was very secret. It was very hard to pinpoint all that. But the more I came to Al-Anon and the more I stopped enabling him, um, the worse he got and the more he progressed. Um, sadly, um, he did go into um, treatment centres and he's been in treatment centres um good many times, but he has never found recovery. Um, he's very sick at the moment. He has cancer. Um, sadly, our, our marriage didn't survive. I'm divorced about um, 11 years now. But um, I pray for him every day now, and that, that's huge, you know, because when I came into al I was so full of anger and resentment. I, You know, I hated the man, but today I don't hate him. I hate the disease. You know, and I know, and I think for me, making any decisions, you know, even going through, I, I ended up having to get protection orders and um, going for a barring order. Um, you know, one of the things that before I made any decision, I thought, why am I making this decision? Is it a decision that's good for me? Is it a decision that I'm trying to punish him? But, um, you know, every decision I made, I th- thought hard, long and hard about it. Um, and I had to protect myself and my children and my children were, were my priority. And I felt, you know, what they were living with. Um, I didn't want to think, let them think that this was OK, that this is how a woman should be treated. And um, especially my son, um, I had to, you know, take action and show that this isn't right. You know, we're all human beings and we should be treated with respect. So, um, you know, sadly, our, our marriage never survived. I have come, I'm in Al-Anon a good many years now. Um, I put the focus on myself. I, you know, self-care is big for me. Um, I've spent a morning self-caring. I took the day off work today to be able to do this because I want to give back something to, to Al-Anon um, because it really saved my life. Um, because either I would have been killed or I would have just ended my own life. That's how I, how, you know how much in despair I was. Um, but today I'm a happy person. I um, I have a lot of humility. I have a lot of um, love. Um, I have two wonderful children and I have a little grandson now. Um, I just emotional every time I talk about him. And sadly, you know, um, Paul has missed all that. He missed his daughter's wedding because of his drinking. Um, he doesn't see his grandson now. And that's what this where this disease brings you.
it brings you to rock bottom and he's hit rock bottom many, many times, but he's never found recovery. Um, and it's sad. You know, there's a lot of sadness and a lot of loss because of this um, illness. But today um, I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I remember an AA person saying that one time to me and I was saying, what is he talking about? You know, but today that's where I am. You know, I have so much hope um, I have so much love for my children and, and my grandson. And, you know, I'm so grateful I found the rooms of Alan and I'm grateful to my friend that brought me there. So what stories we are hearing today. And you're still part of Alan on, yes, even though it's all those years ago and yeah. the separation has happened and everything. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's so important because part of, of the disease of alcoholism um, it, it robs the people that live with them as well and, and you change your personality, you change everything to try and control this disease. So I know that I've to, to, I want to keep going to Al-Anon because it's good for me and it's good for me to focus on myself and it's part of me looking after self. It's like a way of life for me now. And listeners uh, just uh, come on to us there and, and, and says, I'm, I'm just coming to this interview late. It's riveting. Uh, and apologies for this question. Uh, but if you could answer it, I'd appreciate it. Uh, that poor man. And of course, uh, you're talking about Pat, who talked to us a moment ago. And this ties in really uh, with, with you, Gina, in a way. Um, I've been hearing what Pat's saying about his wife just drinking cans all day. Why won't he leave her for a better life for himself? Uh, that was an option for me uh, a number of years ago. Unfortunately, uh, you know, most of us still love our alcoholics. Um, my alcoholic is not at this stage able to function independently. Uh, she wouldn't be able to survive on her own. Uh, I have thought of leaving many, many times. Uh, but I've always been brought up, you know, to take care of the vulnerable. I feel vulnerable myself lots of times and I haven't been able to bring myself, I haven't had the strength yet to be able to uh, detach fully from the alcoholic. I detach in my own way. Uh, We don't have any meaningful life together anymore Uh, but because of circumstances, property and stuff as well, I'm not in a position at the moment to uh, it's not that lots of people do uh, separate, I just haven't got there yet. We've heard Patricia, Pat and Gina. Marcus is up next and they're talking about their own situations, living with people who have an alcohol addiction and the impact it has and the benefits they've received from attending Al-Anon. Marcus, you're very welcome to the show. Now, your story is slightly different to the others in that it was your parents. Tell us about your family situation. Yeah, thanks, Jerry, um, And thanks who's gone before me to help me. Um, yeah, well, how do I how did I find Alan on? That was about ten years ago. Um, a couple of incidents happened to me that um, burst my bubble, so to speak. One was my father passing away, um, who I didn't get on with at the time. And then a few years later, a friend of mine took his own life. And then a few years later, the straw that broke the camel's back was I split up with a girl that I I really liked, and I didn't have the coping tools. But I would be on the phone to my brother who was in AA a few years, and every time he got off the phone, I'd feel better. Then he recommended I go to AA, but I didn't drink, and he just kept asking me to go. Was he an alcoholic, your brother? Um, yeah, well, I suppose he was. He qualified for AA. OK. But how he found AA was a strange story that a friend of his was going to get the sack from work if he, unless he went to AA, and he asked my brother would he go with him. My brother went with him, liked what he heard, encouraged his friend to go back the next day because they said, you must get 90 meetings in 90 days. And that friend said, no, no, I went to one. The job asked me to go to one. 
That guy is still drinking today, doesn't see his kids. But my brother was intrigued and went back. So that's for him to say, is he an alcoholic or not? But, yes. So they call it the College of Knowledge. So he was intrigued. So here I am on the phone to him years later, getting off the phone feeling great. And he was suggesting I go to AA and I said, I don't drink. And then he said, oh, I found Al-Anon. Al-Anon, that's where you should be going. And I said, I don't need it. And he said, well, look, you don't seem to need it when we start off. Or you seem to need it when we start off on the phone. But by the end of it, you don't need it. He said, I'm just feeding you my program. So he, he put it to me in a great way. He said, look, if you were in America and you were putting time into yourself to be a better person, you'd be revered. Your job would want to keep you. They'd, they'd look at that and say, wow, look at this guy. Put his own time and money into improving himself. In Ireland, it's a stigma. People think, oh, there's something wrong with you if you need help. He wouldn't shut up. And I said, I'll go just to get him off my back. And when I was in there, it suggested you go to six meetings before deciding if Alanon is for you. And within the six meetings, I heard him, the language he speaks, the manageability. And I heard people share worse stories than me. I went in thinking my burdens were the heaviest. And I was just really intrigued to say, wow, that's, that's, what he, that's why he was saying go to AA. I get it now. And then after the six meetings, I said, OK, I've done that. See you later. And then a few weeks later, I found myself kind of saying, well, would anyone notice if I dipped in and out? And I grew up. With both parents, blessed them, you know, like being alcoholic. But at the time, I didn't see that. And years ago, I didn't see that. But that's what Alan gave me was the ability to understand where they came from, their journey. They did a lot of kids early on in life. How many children in the family? Eight. And are you saying your parents were alcoholics? Yeah, blessed them, yeah. They turned to alcohol. Um, life just became too much for them and they found solace. And Ireland wasn't educated in the impacts of alcohol. I don't think... If they had before them all they would lose, wrote down on paper, and if they were to pick up a drink, you'd lose all this. They never would have. But it's insidious, and it grows. And years later, they say alcoholism tears families apart, and it does. So I grew up with a lot of sh- shame, um, pride as well. If you can't do something, you know, we all, I also came from ridicule and sarcasm, and um, it crushes your soul and your spirit, and it stopped me from doing or being or living because of fear. Fear basically. Um, Fear or love are the two greatest motives in life. And I, I, fear dominated me. What Al-Anon gives you, though, as well, is it puts the I over the E, the intelligence over the emotion. And what we do live with most people is the emotion overrides the intelligence and we act out and we're always res- just reacting rather than responding. And Al-Anon is such a good gauge. As I say, it's like the college of knowledge. When you go there, whatever's going on in your life, like Al-Anon, they say Al-Anon turns stumbling bo- blocks into stepping stones. And the space in between them stepping stones can be any day. Like yesterday, I didn't have a great day, but I knew not to react or send a text to somebody. I I let it be. I talked to someone, my brother actually, who I value his opinion, and we we put it through the rinser, and it came out. Now, I mean, if you just dyed your clothes black and you hadn't washed that machine again, and you were to put your whites in it, they'd come out black, and you've only yourself to blame. But if you had a brand new washing machine, you'd put them in that. And that's like when you talk to an unknown person, you go to a meeting, you're putting it through a a rinser that has... um, intelligence as opposed to feeding off emotion and there's so many people out there that have just their own experiences their own strength but what they have is tools coping tools for life and I'm a carpenter and I have a lot of tools and there's going to be tools that will continue to be invented to help you with time efficiency neatness and I'd be a fool not to go with them if I just stuck with the same chisel hammer measuring tape that the first carpenters had well my, my days would be longer more enduring. And when you go to Alnon, you just get so many little tools that people have used. You hear them say how their life is more manageable. But also the compassion you have. Now, my parents, I say, 
there was times I hated my environment growing up. But now I could look back and just only have love for them. I didn't help them. They never found recovery. But you do learn that you can't control alcohol. You didn't cause it and you can't cure it. And that helps you to detach. I have faith. I'm spiritual. It doesn't mean I'm religious. I just have a faith. And sure, if God can't help them, I don't stand a chance. And there's a great way to be able to just hand them over to God. God just doesn't look after me. He looks after everybody in that respect. So look, I can't help them. I hope you can, God. And it helps you just kick on with your own life. Practice self-care. We all deserve the best life possible. And it just helps you grow, you know. And I wasn't long um, I wasn't long in Alan when I seen a nature program where a big tree fell down. And the narrator said, as the camera spun around, he said, now watch what grows that was living in its shadow. And next thing, it was a time lapse, fast forward, and all the shoots started to grow because now they were getting light. And I thought, wow, that's me. Now that I found Alan, I'm no longer swayed by other people's opinions and beliefs. I'm actually going to meet my own needs and, and what I like to do. And I am creative and... And I just, that's what it does. It gives you the freedom to be you in your life. It's going to be a short life. It'll be over before you know, but how many people live their own best life. And it's not going to fix everything, but it's going to help you manage things and see it more clearly in in a better perspective. And you are different to Pat, you know, with his, with his wife. You know, when you think about uh, Gina and her husband and, and yourself, now the impact your parents' heavy drinking alcoholism had on you as children that you carried with you inside you for years mm-hmm. and going to Al-Anon has shed this great light on your life and made such a difference to you. How long are you going? Ten years. And how often do you go? Twice a week. I do because if I miss one, I still get one. And it's like learning a language. If if you were to sign up for French classes ten years ago but never go, would you know any French? But if you continually go and just implement them, well then soon enough you'll grasp it, you know. And um, I don't wait for the proverbial to hit the van and life get out of control and then say, well, i got to go back there, that helped me. I go so there and I can have signposts and I see danger and I see red flags and things pop up that I can steer clear and navigate. They do say you wake up with serenity and peace, but it's up to yourself. How do you maintain that throughout the day? You can lose it at any turn or you can learn how to keep it. And, you know, I have more peace in my days, you know. And you look back on them now and you think differently on what they were and how they were addicted and... Oh, yeah, I say I don't think they chose it. But in Ireland, Ireland was very uneducated. It probably still is to a large extent. But they would have found solace and did a lot of kids and finances were a strain. And I heard that guy, I forget his name, Peter McVerry Trust. Mm. And he was talking about the homeless and he said, I don't blame them taking drugs. He said, they need some little glimmer of hope or some little life, some enjoyment throughout the day if they're homeless all their lives. He said, I can see what they do. And I can see my parents, bless them. If life was too much and drink gave them a bit of solace and escapism, they didn't know the pitfalls and before they knew it, it had them mm. in, in, in their grip. Let's go back to where we started with Patricia. My oh my, I have to say, this has been a remarkable afternoon for me on Late Lunch, I have to say, in the stories we've been just listening to and what Al-Anon is, is all about. Patricia, how do people get in touch with Al-Anon? What's the easiest way to find out more? For those who don't know where to turn, information about our Al-Anon Step, a 12-step programme can be found on our websites www.alanonuk.org.uk and www.alanonireland.org and the telephone number of our Dublin Information Services is 0187 and details of all our meetings that take place throughout the world are also available on our websites. 
Thank you all for joining me on Late Lunch today. As I said, it's been remarkable. To Patricia, Pat, Gina and Marcus, thank you for joining, uh, joining us and telling us your stories. I wish you well. Thank you. Thank you. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The Renault Selection used car event is now on. If you want to save thousands, check out this month's offers, including low APR finance, two years warranty and roadside assistance. Terms and conditions apply. 18th, 21st, 40th, 50th, 60th, hen, stag parties, celebrate good times, come on. But divorce parties? Are you joking me? No, I ain't. Stephen Mangan's on the line to tell us more. Hello, Stephen. How are you? I'm very good. <laughs> divorce parties, come on. Parties are the new big thing. Uh, tell me that now. For every four weddings we're going to get in every year, now we get a divorce party. And we've done a heap of them at this stage. You're not on a speakerphone there, no? I'm not, no. No, no, no I'm, just I'm, come into the, to come into, yeah, to the, to the mouthpiece there. Thanks a million yeah. for, for that. How many have you done? Tell me again. We've done them to about 60 at this stage. In, know? in the last, in the last long, the last year yeah, or so, is it? We're doing them, we're, we're doing them, uh, we're doing them since, you know, since divorce was legalised. Right. But I mean, in the last, I'd say the last two and a half years, and up to this year, this year alone we've had, uh, we've 12 buckets for divorce parties this year alone. And is it men or women coming to you or a mix or what way does it work? Well, I tell you, 99.9% of it is, it's the ladies who are celebrating their, um, their, their nuptials being uh, <laughs> disbanded, as, <laughs> as they say. But, I mean, it's, it's the, the lads, as I said before, the lads will go down and have a couple of points down, down the local with their mates or whatever. But the women seem to make this into an event as big as the wedding. I mean, I've done some of these parties where you could, could have had about, you know, 200 people at it. Do you know what I mean? So some of them are crazy. But some of them are actually better than the weddings itself. <laughs> really? And it's, oh, most, yeah. it's mostly women, Stephen, you're saying, that come it to is. you. Yeah. Uh, have you done any for men or any... Would a couple ever do a divorce party together? I've done one for a couple whose wedding I had actually done previously, 10 years previously, and I'd done their wedding, and when they got divorced, it was amicable, and the whole it was a great night. And they, they both decided, look, you know, marriage is now for us. They, you know, they parted ways, and, I mean, by all means, they're still great friends, you know what I mean? And uh, I was just saying that, uh, you know, the girl, the lady in the, in question here is getting married again next year, and I'm actually doing it. I'm doing a wedding entertainment, so this will be our second wedding that I've done a wedding entertainment for, and one divorce party. So she's keeping me in business at this stage. <laughs> Stephen, talk about word of mouth and the repeat business. Well, my God, that takes the biscuit for sure. Here, tell me this. Any uh, strange incidents or, you know, did you see anything really? We at a, yeah, we've had a few mad ones where we went out to the garden of a house, uh, we, uh, we were say on the north side of Dublin, and we went out there, and basically they had little pots of paint where she was thrown around the wedding dress. She had a scarecrow made up at the back. And they're like a barbecue style, gorgeous day outside, and we had a great day, entertainment outside, place was buzzing, and at the end of the night, they set fire to the wedding dress. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I mean, great crack, and all was bad, but I mean, this woman had, had found her husband, uh, had, had uh, you know, had been playing away after nine months of marriage. And it took her five and a half years to, you know, to get out of that. So, I mean, she was celebrating all the way through, you know. Well, you could understand the burning oh, in that can. case, couldn't you? You? You, can, you can see, you know, you can see where, you know, and I, I'm going to be slaughtered for this. But women tend to, you know, really go out and, you know, you know and, and make sure that they're, they're known that I'm divorced now. You know, where the lads really couldn't care. 
you know, the lads to them, it's a piece of paper and that's it. You know what I mean? As I said, a couple of points. But the women really want to get it out there, you know, where, where they want to, you know, have the party and, you know, declare that I'm, I'm free now again of, of your man and that's it, you know. It's all over. So listen, we're uh, celebrating over. it as the leaf turns in the book of life. What about the one? Was there something with a wedding book that somebody did? There was another one where we done where the actual wedding book where you sign for the wedding book where you go in and you know you know when you go to something yes. and you sign the book and the whole Well, she invited all the guests who was on a wedding and, and obviously her new friends and the whole lot. But basically she said to them, Look, scratch your name off that book and that's how they divided up their friends. Because anybody who didn't come to the party or anybody, you know, in that sort of context where she you know, who she she's seen wouldn't come to the party were still their name was still on the book and she, that was the end of them. They got uh, they got divorced as well as the husband. <laughs> so she she that that's an interesting one. So anyone who came and saw the names crossed them off. They're okay. They were staying in the friend circle for the future, but anyone whose name remained were over as well. It was bye bye there. They were divorced as well, yeah. So so it was a multiple divorce that she had, you know what I mean? It was a it was a bit of a crazy one. But another one that was another great night, you know what I mean? But uh, you know, you, you get other ones as well. There was another girl I done who was a sculptor. She she makes sculptures and that sort of thing. And she basically got the toaster and the kettle and the whole lot and she cut them in half and she made little sculptures, made little art pieces out of them, you know what I mean? So I mean there, there is a creative way of doing it as well. You know, but you know that's 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 uh, that's uh, that's another kettle of fish altogether. <laughs> my oh my, the things people think of and turn to. You would think, Stephen, that in a lot of cases, well, it's a sad time, but more and more people are actually looking on this as joyous and celebratory. Well, you, you know, I mean, breaking up with a marriage, of course, is a sad time, but I mean, it's four years to get divorced, and by the time anybody's even, it's over the you know the initial fill up as well. You're looking at eighteen months down the line before they even contemplate divorce. So you're looking at a long road down the, the, ahead before the actual divorce is finalised. It's not like it is in England where you can get divorced overnight. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they've they've kind of had that feel of it. The sadness is over. Most of them are in you know new relationships, committed relationships again, and they just find you know the past is the past. And um, by the time, as I said, they get the divorce, they're well in the past. You know what I mean? You know yourself. It's five years down the line. Mm. Anyway, it's uh, another string to your bow. It is. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah, there's been a, quite a few strings in the last few years. There is indeed. You were in Red Rock, weren't you? I was. I played in Hampton Red Rock for about two years, yeah. Carried Queen, you know, so I was there for a couple of years, all right. So I think season two and season three. And unfortunately, Red Rock is no more. Yeah. So, I mean, it's you know, it was a sad old day when we all went on the beer for the last time. And, mm. uh, you know, look, look, you know, there's two, there's two more episodes in the bag for later on in the year, and the crackers, so they're well worth, they're the well we're waiting for. Yeah, and it really went down so well, and it was an Irish production as well. I know you cover Michael Bublé, you're a DJ, oh my God. Anyway, divorce parties. My uh, Michael Bublé show is flying at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, listen, you're a great fella. You are, as I said, you are talented on many fronts. Anyway, with divorce, uh, a fact of life, and uh, quite a lot of them at the moment. Business is looking good for Stephen Mangan. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks very much. Talk to you soon. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's Stephen Mangan there. Let's head towards news and sport at three o'clock. 
My next guest is Development Manager with the Disability Federation of Ireland and I'm delighted to welcome him to Late Lunch, especially when I heard he's a former uh, telecom P&T man like myself, PJ Clear. It's great to see you. I'm great to see you too, Jerry. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Now, this got me because we're going to talk Mm. about both, I mentioned Loud there uh, just before the break, but about Loud and Mead and people living with disabilities. Can you give our listeners the figures? How many in Loud, how many in Mead? Well, I think before I give the figures, even just to say that these figures come from the CSO, the Central Mm. Statistics Office, and they came from the census in 2016. So they're fairly current. But also in that census, people were asked a question. And the question in the census form said, do you do you have a disability or do you live with a disabling condition? And so people answered this question, I suppose, in the privacy of their own homes. So in that context, and it was also down to what they felt themselves about their lives. So actually in Loud, actually 17,881 people, now that's almost 18,000 people in Loud said, I have a disability or a disabling condition in my life. And 22,603 people said the same thing in County Mead. That's a significant block of the population of both counties, isn't it? In Loud, it's 14% of the population, and in Mead, it's 12% of the population. God, I'd never have thought, I have to be honest with you here, that it would be, would be that high. And here's the other interesting fact, and you, you've given me this. Um, four out of every five people actually acquired it in their working lives. That's correct. Uh, Many people would presume when we talk about disability in general that people are born with a disability or a condition. And yeah, that's actually the figure. Four out of every five people living with a disability today acquired it during their working life. That's high as well. Now, when you have a disability, whether you're born or you, you develop it during your lifetime as well, Disability, you know, people like to focus on ability rather than disability. But does it disenfranchise you in life? It disenfranchises people in many ways. Um, I suppose uh, one of the other startling figures, I suppose, when we were talking about statistics, I can give you is that 26% or one in four, you could say, live in consistent poverty. And what does that mean? Consistent poverty means that you eat meat on more than once in the week. You have more than two sets of clothing. You have, you know, so there's 26% of people with disabilities are living in consistent poverty, ongoing poverty. And if you look at even some other statistics uh, in Loud, for example, people over the age of 15 who are in the working environment, only 21% of those have a disability, whereas 51% of the general population uh, are working. Mm. And in in uh, in Mead, that's 26% of the people with a disability and in uh, in the general population that's 57%. Is that down to the fact that people, when they have a disability, just can't do the job or is it on the other hand that they're not in the radar of employers? There's There are many factors. Uh, one of them particularly, we, we have a saying, I suppose, within uh, the disability environment and that is that the environment is disabling. It's not actually the the person is disabled. So in other words, many people could do an awful lot more work. They could they could enjoy a lot more leisure activities. They could be out and about, just like everybody else in the community. But sometimes it's not possible for them. But having said that, 
um, I think, Jerry, you, you make a very good point when you ask, is there, you know, is there something to do with maybe the, the employment side of things, uh, people not being aware or whatever? There's a huge lack of awareness that there are many grants, for example, available to employers if they wanted to support somebody. And given that four out of five people with a disability acquire it in their working lives, if you want, if you had an employee who wanted to, who unfortunately, you know, acquired a disability and wanted to come back to work. There are many grants available and supports to make that happen. Um, a, a good, I suppose, maybe. And, and when we say disabling conditions, even in the normal work environment for all of us, like even yourself, Jerry, you seem to be in a very nice, comfortable chair there now, Jerry, <laughs> I will say, as I am myself here. But if your back was sore. Yeah. You know, you could talk to LMFM and just say to them, you know, would you mind? Uh, actually, my back is a bit sore. I think I could do with a better chair. Mm. LMFM would certainly get you a chair. And as they, as as most employers would, those kind of grants are there. Uh, the kind of grants that make it possible for a person uh, to use particular software is there. Uh, if they get a visual impairment, that software grants are there. So there is quite a lot. So that's that's in the work environment. But also, you know, um, when we talk about, that's employment, but we talk about education, uh, we talk about training. Uh, there are lots of things that, that can be done. There are lots of barriers, but there are lots of ways of overcoming those barriers. And also, um, then we talk about um, planning. And I think this is really important because in our, uh, DFI has obviously a local election manifesto for 2019. Yes. And in that, we, we are asking all the local candidates to make all local public services open and accessible for people with disabilities. We're asking them to make sure that people with disabilities can participate in local decision making. Now, this is where the environment can change. When you're planning something, that people with disabilities have a say, the same as every other citizen, they're equal citizens. So to make it possible for people with disabilities to be involved in that decision process and uh, in the planning process itself, um, last year we signed Ireland uh, ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and what did that mean? It means that it underpins all the equality legislation all the, 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 the equality and rights that people already have in the country and we're asking that every local authority publishes a UN CRPD implementation plan in their counties by 2020 so the idea here is that we're very lucky, I must say now, in Loud and in Mead, because in all of, in both of those counties, people are working with the local authorities. They're working very hard with them. We have, for example, just if I can give a plug for, for a particular place, on this Friday, actually, on May the 3rd, between 9.30 and 12.30 in the Ashburn Hotel in Navan, um, the Mead Disability Network, in cooperation with the local authority and others, are actually having a, an event which is open to the public, and uh, we'll be discussing a consultation, really, I suppose, about various different aspects and issues that are occurring for people with disabilities and looking for solutions. Mm. And that's how we work things out, working together. That's how we make things better for those 14,000 people in Loud, or those 18,000 people in Loud and those 22,000 people in Mead, working together to find solutions. You have the election, of course, coming, you mentioned there, and it's <laughs> mm -hmm. a, a good time to press your case as well. Well, um, you see, this is it. it. It is, of course, elections come around, you know, every few years, every five years, as you know. But um, 
what we need is this this needs to be on a daily basis on a continuous yes, basis just not, f- not at f- this time it's it's like having a puppy they're not just a dog is not just for, for christmas, christmas. Yeah. um we I, have this situation um yeah and in fairness there are lots of participation structures like for example the um the public participation networks and uh, so we have a lot of um opportunities through which people can get their voice heard and uh, so, yeah, we we want this uh, kind of this kind of uh, consultation, this kind of um, engagement has to take place f- over the, all the time. Is it fair to say a lot done, a lot more to do? It is. I I, I think access. Uh, we call uh, you might have heard the term, and I don't know if if uh, your listeners might have heard the term universal access. Access when we say universal access, we're talking about access to employment, access to housing, access to public buildings, and any building, mm. in fact. Um, universal access is like building your own house. You're never done with it. Hmm. Um, you'll always achieve a certain amount. And we all know as well that there are certain restrictions that everybody is trying to make reasonable accommodation as best they can. And it's something that we need to work on all the time. So certainly a lot done and a lot more to be done. But um, I suppose the what we what I suppose DFI and anybody working in this area would like to say is we're up for the challenge. We want to work with anybody who will work with us and not in a blame fashion, not saying to people your house isn't your your building isn't accessible or you're, you know, you're, you're not making jobs available. We want to work with people to let them under, make them understand, you know, what is possible and how we might find solutions together. That's the only way we'll get it. Mm. And, and it, it makes perfect sense. If people want to find out more about you and your organisation, Disability Federation Ireland, can they interact directly with you and get in touch? And they be, can, of uh, course. Yes? They can, of course. Well, um, I can give my email address to you there. It's pjclear, C-L-E-E-R-E, at disability-federation.ie. And my, my number, my own number is 86 38 one one zero six four, and the number of the organisation is zero one four five four seven nine seven eight. And that consultation is happening in Navan, is it? You said it's happening in Navan. When in is the that Ashburn on Hotel again? On oh. this coming Friday, yeah. Friday morning uh, from nine thirty to twelve thirty. Okay. Wish you well, and uh, it is a good time to talk about this. But uh, access inclusiveness, it is so important. It really is. And when you see those numbers in both counties, it's majorly significant. And particularly, you know, as you say, we are in an election year. And for any local candidates listening out there, remember, that's 18,000 people in Loud with a vote. That's 22,603 in Mead with a vote. I'm sure they're taking note of that. They're in here every day with Michael debating this, that and the other. And this should be on the agenda as well. PJ, I have to leave it there for today. Thank well, you so much for joining us. May I just me. say hi to Pat Clark, who's the Down Syndrome Ireland CEO. And yes. he's, he's actually a, a native of this, of this region. He is indeed. And a great yeah. man he is. And I've talked to him on many occasions. Louise, tell us. Thank you, PJ. Thank you very much. Who has uh, the correct answer? 28, Nathan Carter. He is Anne, Anne McLaughlin from Navin. Got it well, right. Well done to you. Pair of tickets to the Inniskeen Country Fest. 28 years of age he is. And thank you to everybody who entered that one there. We leave you today in the company of AHA. Yes, remember this one? I love it. It's a great old song, isn't it? Take on me and take on us again on Late Lunch tomorrow from Half One.
LMFM podcasts. Brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Getting hitched? Cartmacross Credit Union likes to say I do when financing your wedding loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.